The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Let's take our Bibles now, if you would, and open them to Revelation chapter 21. Our text again this morning is verses 9 through 27, which is the Bible's most extensive description of the New Jerusalem, which is the part of heaven that is the home of the Lord's church, which is the bride of Christ. Now, if you are a part of the church, the New Testament church, this is the place that you're going to call home in eternity. The Bible says that you are a citizen of heaven, and the New Jerusalem is the capital city of heaven in which you will live. And this is what Paul writes about our citizenship in heaven in Coloss- or rather Philippians chapter 3. He said, For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. For our conversation is in heaven. Now that word conversation in the King James is translated from a word that means community. It means citizenship. It's also related to the word that means politics. So everyone that's saved is a citizen of heaven. But listen carefully. Not everyone that is saved is a citizen of the New Jerusalem. Now, everyone that, that dies and believes in Christ will go to heaven. There is a, 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 the new earth that God creates, and it's a wonderful place, and that will be populated by those who are not a part of the Lord's church. But this beautiful city of the New Jerusalem is a place that will be accessible to, to all the saved. Verse number 26 says the nations will enter into it. And then uh, everyone can visit the New Jerusalem in order to come before the throne for worship. But there is a special class of believers that lives in this city, and it's those who are part of the redeemed church of God. Now, I think it's appropriate for us to uh, study the theology of heaven. There's much misunderstanding about it when there really shouldn't be. That is, if we take what the Bible says and we end it there, we'll have as much understanding as God wants us to have. And if we rely on other information that has no authority other than someone's opinion, then we'll end up in misunderstanding and maybe also in outright heresy. Our confidence is in what God says. God is truth. Jesus said that God's truth is the only truth, and that's what we rest in. We have no confidence in the words of men. Now, I'd like for us to look at this 21st chapter And I'm not going to read all of these text verses at once, so you need to keep your Bible open, and I'll refer to different verses as we proceed. We do believe in the exposition of Scripture, and that's with the purpose of helping you to understand what God says. Now, some people study the Scriptures in order to determine what it means to them. I'm not interested in what it means to you. I'm interested in what it means. And so this is how we study the Word of God. The meaning of the Scripture is the same for everybody. So that's what we do. We tell you what the Scriptures mean, and then you apply what it means to increase your understanding of God. Now let me catch you up just a little bit on where we are in our study. We're on a tour of heaven. 
And we're taking the same tour that the Apostle John took. And his tour guide was one of God's angels. In verse number 9, he was summoned. Uh, he gets a summons from an angel to come and to see the bride, which is the Lamb's wife. And he meant, that means for John, to come up to see the city. Because in this passage, the city and the bride are one and the same. So John was taken up into the New Jerusalem to see a city that's filled with the glory of God. It's like a sparkling diamond in which the glorious light of God's presence shines through it. In verse number 23, we learn that the light source is Jesus Christ. That He is the living God. His glory is the light that fills this city. And the brightness of Christ is so intense that there is no need for any other light. No other light could be seen because... Christ outshines them all. So there's no need for lesser lights, not the sun, the moon, or the stars. There's no need of mercury vapor lights, like you see in this auditorium. No need for fluorescent lights, because the Lamb is the light of it. He's fully sufficient to light the entire place. Light is one of the magnificent aspects of God's character. His light is emblematic of His holiness, His knowledge, His wisdom, His might. Light encompasses all of his attributes, and Jesus is all of those. He is worthy to be praised, worthy of worship. He is God above all gods, just as we read there in that psalm a few minutes ago. Well, today we are in the third part of our outline, which is why your listening sheet begins with number three, and that is the architecture of the city. God is the architect, he's the builder, he's the designer of this city, and it's commensurate with God's majesty. If God lives there, then we would expect that he would build a city with the finest materials, that he would spare no expense. Nothing we've ever seen compares to this city. Oh, the world, of course, has many beautiful cities. Um, on the surface, at least, they're, they're beautiful, but you dig down deeper and you find out they're teeming with all sorts of corruption. But God's city is not like that. God's city is immaculate from the top to the bottom. It's perfect in every detail, and it reflects the God who made it. Now, I'm sure that John had seen magnificent cities in his time. Jerusalem itself was a magnificent city. The temple complex that was expanded by Herod was really a sight to behold. I don't know how many cities that John visited. I do know that he was in the city of Ephesus where there was a tremendously great, magnificent temple that was built to the goddess Diana that in the ancient world it was one of the wonders of the world. No, no one had ever seen anything like it. It was ornate. It was the best that men could do, the finest that they could produce. But Diana's temple could not approach the beauty of God's temple of heaven. The whole city of heaven is God's temple. If you look at verse number 22, it says, And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. So there is no separate temple in the New Jerusalem. The entire city serves as God's temple. He is the presence there. His light, His glory in the city. He Himself is that temple. Well, there are four aspects of the architecture that we've already discussed. So I'm just going to briefly mention those before we go on. We learned that the city is shaped like a cube. The city is four square. It's a cube uh, like the shape of the holy of holies in the tabernacle and the temple. The whole city represents the holy of holies that was a pattern for the tabernacle in the wilderness and the temple that was built by Solomon. 
Now, inside of both the tabernacle and the temple, there was a compartment called the Holy of Holies. It was also four square. And in that four square compartment is where they kept the Ark of the Covenant. And above the Ark was the glory of God, the Shekinah light of God's glory that was in that four square compartment. Now, if you're interested in those types of things and types and figures of Old Testament worship, what you might want to do is stick around for a few years as we're going to look at the book of Hebrews a little bit later that talks about worship of the Old Testament and how that foreshadows the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is a huge city. It's 1,500 miles on each side. It rises to a height of 1,500 miles, and it forms one big giant cube. Next, we talked about the wall that surrounds it. It's surrounded by a diamond wall. A wall that is 216 feet thick. It's 6,000 miles long. It goes completely around the city and it rises to the height of it. And it's like a crystal gem in appearance to a diamond. And that wall is so brilliant. The glory of Christ shines through it. And that glory is refracted into beautiful colors. Now, could you think about that for just a minute? Did God give us gemstones and crystal and reflect, refraction of light as an example of the beauty of heaven? You know, we often think mostly about the rainbow being a, a symbol of God's promise that he wouldn't send a flood. But could it be that God has also given us a rainbow to show us that we can have peace with God and that he's giving us a picture of heaven and the beautiful light that will come from heaven? That might be another reason that God gave us the rainbow. And then next we discuss the symmetry of the dimensions. That God likes order. God likes balance. God uses specific numbers. He likes consistency. With God, what you see is what you get. God never hides his intentions. There are no, there are no pretenses with him. James said in him there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Hebrews says that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So you never have to worry about God being different than what uh, he says that he is. And so you never have to be concerned that God has a hidden agenda. God is always out in the open. God is always consistent. And his numbers that he uses are emblematic of that consistency. You see it throughout the scriptures. So you see threes and sixes and sevens and tens and twelves. Those are numbers that God uses. He uses the number three. That's the godly number of the Trinity. And you see the number six. That is the number of man. And you see the number seven. That's the number of completion. And the number ten. That is the number of power. And then there's the number twelve. Which is a number of God's providence and of God's selection. His divine selection of his people. And the most prominent number that we find in the New Jerusalem is this number 12. There are 12 foundations, there are 12 gates, there are 12 sentinels. The city has 12,000 furlongs on each side. There are 24 elders, which are 12 that represent the Old Testament and 12 that represent the New Testament, the apostles of the Lamb. And then fourthly, we saw that the city is supported by multiple foundations, that each of the foundations is a beautiful gemstone. There are 12 of these foundation stones. And what God does, he exposes the foundation for all to see. And that's to show us that foundations are important to God. And it reminds us of the foundation of our faith, that it has to be built upon the solid rock of Jesus Christ, a strong foundation. 
you must build your life on the hope and the confidence of a foundation that you're sure of, a foundation that never gives way. And that sure foundation rock is Christ. He is the anchor of the soul that can never be moved. My hope, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Now, if you learn anything else about these studies, or nothing else I should say, learn this, you can count on Jesus, that you are secure in Him. Everything in heaven points to Him, and He never lets you down. Well, now we can move on to the next item of heaven's architecture. All of these have corresponding truths that are attached to them. There are many symbols that we find here, many symbols that are in Scripture, so that every time that you open up a Scripture and you read about Jesus, you're actually seeing something of heaven that's opened up to you. Now, fifthly, then, is the access to the city. How do you get into the place? I mean, physically, how would you get into it? Well, it's access through gates of pearl. Verse 21 says, And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, as it were transparent glass. Now, could you expect anything less from God? Recently, there was a new home that was built uh, just a short distance from my house, and I pass it every day. And I, I was impressed by the beautiful entrance that they made into this property. They put a nice solid fence around it, and then they put this impressive driveway entrance into it, and it has a beautiful wooden gate. Now, a beautiful wooden gate would never do for an entrance into God's city. Now, we're talking about a, a city that has a, a diamond wall that surrounds it with the foundation of gemstone, so you're not going to put a wooden gate on the city of God. That, that would not be an appropriate material. Now, the gates of ancient cities served an important purpose. They were heavy and they were strong. They could be closed in order to keep out intruders. But nobody really cared how pretty they were because the enemy was always coming at the gates and hitting it with battering rams, scarring it up, or setting it on fire, setting the gates on fire, trying to burn them down in order to get in. God's not concerned about that because there are no enemies to attack his city. And this is something that we do need to understand about our God and take comfort in this, that God destroys His enemies. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 for a moment. This is, this is one of the promises that God gives that He's going to take care of our enemies. Now, He tells you, you're not supposed to hurt your enemies. He tells you to pray for them. He tells you to do good things for them. He tells you not to attack them. Don't hurt them. Don't try to take vengeance on them. Because he's capable of doing that himself. And he will do it at the right time. So he says here in 2 Thessalonians 1, Paul tells the people that, are, that have been suffering under persecutions about what God is going to do to their enemies. And he says, seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you, and to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and, and from the glory and from the glory of His power, when He shall come to be glorified in His saints and to be admired in all them that believe, 
because our testimony among you was believed in that day. So make sure that you know this about God. God does not like anyone messing with his children. He has a plan for his enemies. And God's not going to let them get away. All of his enemies at this point that we're reading, as John sees it, all of God's enemies have been stomped on. They've all been destroyed in the brightness of his coming. Now we understand this about God, that God is a benevolent God. God is a loving God. God is a generous God. God is a merciful God, isn't he? God is all of those things, but we also understand God is totally intolerant. That God does not tolerate wickedness and perversion of any kind. He will not tolerate it. He will destroy it all. And you know why? Because you never want to forget that the joys of heaven, what God has for us there, are come to us in only one way, and that's because of the agony that Jesus Christ spent on the cross. The enemies of God put Jesus on the cross. Our sins put him on the cross. There was a heavy price to be paid to deliver us. And that's why God is never tolerant of those who are the enemies of his people. Now in heaven, there is no sin, so God has no enemies. And these gates are not designed to keep anybody out because they're never closed. Look at verse number 25. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. Gates are closed at night because you never know what lurks under the cover of darkness. But in heaven there is no night. In heaven there is no sleep. In heaven there is no fear. Darkness is a symbol of evil. And the perfect light of Christ dispels all of the darkness. 1 John 1.5 This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And so if God is there and God is light, there can't be any darkness. So we don't have to worry about all these enemies. There's no sin, there is no darkness, there's no evil that lurks there. Now, as I mentioned, the Bible includes many symbols of interesting, special significance. And the gates of this city and the material of the gates have their significance. Years ago, I built a house in Kentucky and I built it to sell. It was a house for speculation. And so I bought this big lot in a very exclusive neighborhood. The house was designed to have 5,000 square feet. It was, had specially inlaid hardwood floors, a special design for that. It had trim work, extensive trim work. It had uh, 14-piece crown molding in it. The kitchen had beautiful custom cabinets with marble countertops. There were arches that were throughout the house with expensive chandeliers. And when I chose a door to the entrance of that house, I couldn't put a steel door on it. I wasn't going to put a wooden door on it. And so what I did was I chose a, a door of leaded crystal with a half transom of crystal above it. And that was years ago. I mean, years ago. The cost of that door would be, just to get into the house, is about would be over $14,000 before you ever open, ever open to look what's inside. And so the door on the outside was an indication of what the house would be when you got on the inside. And that's what the gates of pearl do for the new Jerusalem. They prepare you uh, in your imagination for the beauty that must be on the inside. Now, if you have a wall of diamond that surrounds the city, 
the gates to access it, made of pearl, that begins to make you think, what is it going to look like, like when you get inside? Now, there's a beautiful parallel that I have for you to see on this, so hold on to that for just a moment. There are 12 gates, three on each side. Each of them are made of one huge pearl. Now, in the New Testament times, pearls were more valuable than diamonds. They were more valuable than any gemstones. They were more valuable because a perfect pearl is untouched by human hands. Now, to make a beautiful gemstone, that stone has to be cut. And so a diamond cutter cuts the face of the diamond to make it more dazzling in the way that it reflects light, refracts light in just the right way. But a perfect pearl is never touched. Now, I feel a little bit out of place talking about jewelry in front of jewelry experts back there. So when, he, when I say something wrong, instead of amen, he'll say, oh me, that's not right. So I'm going to try to get this right here, okay? A perfect pearl is extremely rare. A pearl is, is unique among precious stones because a pearl is formed in a living creature. You can't do anything to improve a pearl. So a jeweler doesn't cut pearls. He doesn't shape them. They are what they are. Now, in John's time, pearls were highly sought after. One of the reasons that the Caesars wanted to add Britain to its empire was because of the pearl fisheries that were there. And so the emperor could increase his great wealth by all the pearl fisheries that were in Britain. This is the kind of the background that we see here in the choice of the pearl for the gates of the New Jerusalem. But I want us to take a look at how that speaks of Jesus. In one of his most famous parables... A pearl was used to describe something very special about him. Now, I want you to look at that in Matthew chapter 13, if you would. So turn your Bible to Matthew 13, and we want to look at here just for a moment at how a pearl relates to Jesus, how the gates of pearl relate to him. Now, if you look at this parable in Matthew 13, verses 45 and 46, this is what Jesus, Jesus says. He gave us a parable about a pearl. Verse number 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now that parable is short, only two verses, and yet this is one of the most debated of all of Jesus' stories. What does that pearl represent? What does this mean? Who is the merchant man? What does that represent? Now, here is a merchant in this story who, who uh, specialized in pearls, and he went to the marketplaces of many different cities looking for the best pearls that he could find. One day, as he was seeking to add to his collection, he happened upon a pearl that was unique. It was unlike any that he'd ever seen before, and this pearl was exquisite. It was big. The luster of it was stunning. And he recognized the value of that pearl, and he wanted that pearl so much that he sold all of his other pearls, perhaps even hundreds of them, in order to be able to afford to purchase this one pearl. This is the pearl of great price. What is that pearl? And that's the baffling question in the story. Some say the pearl represents the kingdom of God. 
Others say that the pearl is the gospel of Christ. Others say that it's salvation. Still others say that Christ is the merchant man that's represented here. The pearl is the church. And the uh, church is so valuable to Christ that he was willing to give everything that he was, giving his life, his blood, in order to have that, that pearl of the church so he could purchase it. Those are all suggestions that are made about this pearl. But we have to remember the parable, all the parables have one central truth. So all the suggestions that are made can't be right. There may be applications that you can make out of all of these suggestions, but there is one central truth. And I don't have any hesitation to tell you what I think that one central truth is, that I think this pearl represents Jesus, that he is the pearl of great price. Now here in Matthew 13, there are many, many parables about the kingdom. And this parable is special because it's about the king of the kingdom. The pearl is Jesus. His worth, he is worth giving up everything that you are. He is worth giving up all that you have in order to obtain him. He's more valuable in, uh, than anything that's in the world, everything in the world that's rolled together. And unless you are willing to give up all in order to have him, unless you are willing to humble yourself under him and to receive the lordship of him, of him then you'll never be able to own him. You have us give up all for him. And he is the most beautiful pearl of all. Now let's back up just a minute. Let's take a run at the gates again. The pearl of great price is Jesus. There's a wall around the city and you get into it through pearly gates. Listen to what Jesus said in John 10 verse 9. He said, I am the door. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. Jesus is the way in. Jesus is the door. Now, can you think of anything more thrilling than to walk up to these gates and to see that they're made of pearl? And then with your perfect mind that has made to understand all of these many different things, you begin to realize that you gave up everything that you were, that you sacrificed all that you are, you surrendered all that you are to Him, and now because of that you can access this city through those pearly gates that represent Jesus. Now, because of your faith in Him, you stand at the entrance and you pass through because you have Him as your own. And that's the only reason that you're allowed to enter. The light of His glory is shining through the diamond walls. The foundation stones are glistening with the light. And the pearl of of these gates is glistening before you. And those are indications as you see them, as you walk up to them, indications of what is on the inside. Now friends, you've just seen Christ in a new way. People can tell you about Jesus. You can read about Him. You can listen to sermons about Him. You can praise Him for His life and all of the good things that He did. But what you see on the outside is only a small glimpse of what is on the inside. The beauty of the inside will change you forever. And when you come to faith in Christ, through faith you enter the inside. And that's when you see what Jesus is all about. And it's only then that you begin to learn how good that salvation is. Oh, you've heard good things. Uh, The best that you were told is not like having faith to see Him on the inside. 
You, you didn't know the peace and the contentment that would come over your soul by looking at him from the outside. Now, people are attracted to heaven because of all these things that we read here, the beautiful sights that are there, and people are attracted to Jesus because he did good things. And all of us agree, Jesus is a model for our lives. He is the best man that ever lived. No question about that. People agree with that. But nobody knows who he is until they have sold all that they have, until they've given up everything to have the pearl of great price. And then they walk through the door by faith and they see him on the inside. And that's what we offer with salvation in Christ. We don't want you to be content with an inferior product. We don't want you to have the world's gemstones that you cut and fashion with your own hands. And we don't want you to have a city that's made with your own hands. We want you to have the perfect pearl, and that is Christ himself. And so we don't want you to have the best life, uh, the one that you have to be the best life that you're living now, and we want you to open the door to the wealth of Jesus, to your best life forever. Because if you settle for what you have now, and you put all your time and your energy into what you have now, you're going to end your life with a worthless string of imitation pearls. Heaven is about Jesus, the pearl of great price. It's only and always about Him. And so this city shouts out the glory of of God. It shouts the triumphs of His glory. I'm sure that there are some who read the story and they see it says gates of pearl and they say, how could there ever be an oyster that big to make a gate out of it? And that's what people think about. Well, I don't worry about things like that because God who made it all can make an oyster big enough to make a pearl, I think, if that's the way that He does it. Don't get stuck on giant oysters and you read this story. You don't want to get on the silliness. Look at the symbols and see what this is saying to you. See what God means. There's nothing as valuable as Jesus. And he's the door that you must walk through in order to enter heaven. Now I thought about this and I thought that is just an excellent place to stop. I can't think of a, a better place, a better thought that we can end on than Jesus Christ, who is the door into heaven, and by faith in him you can be saved and enter in. What a great place to stop. But, to your dismay, um, I do have a schedule to keep. We have to get further along to finish the series, so I need to continue for a few minutes, and we're going to consider just one more feature, and then we'll be through with this for today. Verse number 21. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, as it were, transparent glass. Notice the last part of the verse. And the streets of the city were pure gold, as it were, transparent glass. God is a metro engineer, and he designed a way to travel his city. How? How do you travel it? It's traveled on golden streets. Now let's think about the immensity of the city. Next week we're going to, I'm going to talk more about it, how much room there is in the city. And you can do the math in the meantime if you want. But I'm interested at this point in, in a description of the transit system. The streets in this great metropolis are all made of gold. Now in the scriptures, gold is associated with deity. Gold is associated with kingdoms and kingship. And in the New Jerusalem... The amount of gold that is there is befitting the wealth of a great king. 
The transparency that you see here of the gold, that's just a reference to its purity. It's pure gold. It's perfect purity. The perfect purity of God's holiness. Now, the price of gold today, that is, on the day that I was preparing this sermon, I didn't actually look it up this morning, but the price of gold on the day that I was doing this was just a while ago, was $1,260 an ounce. Now, that doesn't mean very much to me because I can only afford plastic. So if you want to talk about buying gold, the person that you need to talk to is Matt Kaczynski, or you need to talk to Jason Gertz, but you don't want to get them together because their arguments over gold get heated enough to melt the stuff, so you don't want to do that. But I, my, my hope is that the price of plastic goes up, then my Tupperware will be worth something. So I'm hoping for that. When they, when they built the Grayton Casino, the casino agreed to widen and pave Wilfred Avenue. The cost of doing that was $10 million. Now, that was to pave less than two miles of street, of road, uh, it with blacktop, not with gold. Now, they might actually be able to pave it with gold now, considering all that they have taken from stupid suckers who have failed IQ tests. Um, you know, actually, you can't fail an IQ test unless you don't have an IQ. So there's where we are. So, so how do you calculate? how do you calculate how much it costs to pave one mile of road with gold when it costs twelve dollars and sixty cents an ounce, well, that's the that that that's over forty million dollars a ton. Now you don't even want to worry about this because you're getting into numbers that you can't think in, and you just you just get depressed about how poor you are. So even Matt would have to skip one of his vacations to accumulate that much. So so you don't think in these numbers, and we we can't think about this. You know, the national debt of the United States is nineteen trillion dollars now. Can you think in terms of $19 trillion? Neither can the government. I mean, what, I mean what, what's a trillion dollars here or there between taxpaying friends? They, they don't understand it either. And so we, we can't think in these kinds of numbers. And when we're walking down the street, we see a $20 bill on the sidewalk. We think we found gold. I mean, we, we're, we're really good there. I can't understand what Obamacare cost. I can't reason those things out. But does God really care about the cost of the streets? This is what Psalm 50 says. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine, and the fullness thereof. Expense is not an issue for God. You know the amazing thing about Psalm 50? Is, is God's modesty. It's actually his modesty. He says he owns it all. He says the wealth of the world is mine. But he forgot to tell you in Psalm 50 that he owns all of heaven, that he financed the entire project with streets of gold and walls of diamond and foundations of gemstones. All of this belongs to God. Now remember, remember how this city is cube-shaped like the Holy of Holies and Tabernacle and Temple. Listen to this passage from 1 Kings about Solomon's temple and the Holy of Holies. This is what Solomon did. And he set the cherubims within the inner house, and they stretched forth the wings of the cherubims so that the wing of the one touched the one wall, and the wing of the other cherub touched the other wall, and their wings touched one another in the midst of the house. And he overlaid the cherubims with gold, and he carved all the walls of the house round about with carved figures of cherubims and palm trees and open flowers within and without. And the floor of the house, 
He overlaid with gold, within and without. When the priest walked in to the Holy of Holies, he walked on gold. And isn't that a pattern? It is a pattern, isn't it? I mean, the, the Holy of Holies is a miniature of the New Jerusalem. And priests walk on gold. What is heaven? Well, it is a kingdom of priests. Revelation 1 says, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We're priests. Priests walking on gold, pure gold. Everything about God is pure. Pure holiness, pure righteousness, pure light. He's pure. He demands purity. And the only reason that you'll be able to be in heaven is because he has washed you in his own blood and made you pure. So the streets are pure gold. Pure gold, I think, I think this is right, it's 24K, is that right? Pure gold's 24K. Gold, pure gold is soft. And so, in, in, in order to make jewelry, and it's not to be so soft, but they mix the gold with another type of metal. You take 18 karat gold is mixed with six parts of another metal. And often the metal that they choose is copper. And um, gold doesn't dissolve very easily. It takes special chemicals to, uh, to dissolve gold. So when you buy a piece of jewelry that's 18 karat gold, uh, it's mixed with copper or something. The acid in your skin will dissolve the copper in that piece of jewelry and it will turn green. So when you buy your, your, your wife a ring and her finger turns green, you need to be prepared with a good answer for that. And you need to say, I bought you this ring because I knew that green enhances your natural beauty. And she'll buy that, I promise you. That, that'll be okay. So the streets in heaven, though, they're never going to turn green. Why? Because they're pure gold. They're pure gold. Transparency, that's a reference to its purity. Well, I want to finish the message at the point that I started. And... and um, I want you to know the truth, so I want to explain. This is what we're doing. We're explaining the theology of the Bible. And my last point uh, about these streets is a very important theological point. And I want to talk to you for these next few minutes as we finish about the theology of potholes. You didn't know that potholes had their own theology, did you? Apparently, Sonoma County is deep into the religion of potholes. Um, if you live in Petaluma or anywhere in Sonoma County, except on Wilfred Avenue, except there, you are concerned about potholes. We're, we're the worst on seven continents for potholes, notwithstanding the taxes on gas and taxes on water and taxes on electricity and taxes on air and taxes on blood and taxes on taxes, we still have potholes. Now, sometimes I go home across Milbrae Avenue, and after every rain... They fill the potholes with cookie dough or something just to make you think that they've done something out there. And you wonder, why are there so many potholes? And that is actually a theological question that Caltrans does not want to answer. So here's what happened. When Adam sinned, God cursed the earth. E everything on the earth was, was, was perfect when God created it. But when Adam sinned, the earth was no longer perfect. God cursed it and it began to decay. Everything decays. 
which by the way makes evolution impossible. All systems wind down. They decay. They don't get better. Well, after Adam fell, the first thing that God did was to put this curse on the earth. And to overcome decay takes a lot of hard work. It's really hard work to overcome decay. This is why Caltrans sends out eight men to do a two-man job. And that's because it's really, really hard to overcome the decay. And so you have to have six men to cheer on the two that are actually doing the work because they get really depressed about all the decay that they're dealing with. Well, we've been dealing with this problem ever since Adam. Uh, when Adam, when God cursed the earth, uh, there came potholes. When, when Adam sinned, God threw him out of the garden and he put a pothole in the road. And so in other words, if you're following him here, Adam was no longer on easy street. There were potholes. And you and I have been falling into potholes every since, ever since. And when the road department builds a road, the best that they can do, unless there's a salamander in the way or a pigeon that wants a nest somewhere, they, the, the, the best thing that they can do is to build something that decays. Just as soon as they're done, it starts to decay. Doesn't it? It starts to decay. As soon as they're done... Uh, you know, as soon as the casino goes broke, uh, we won't be able to keep up with the decay on Wilfred Avenue. That probably won't happen in your lifetime because people without an IQ don't get suddenly smart. So it's probably going to take a while for them to run out of money over there. But the theology of potholes is decay. Everything in the world decays. Nothing lasts forever. So what happens when you remove the cause of decay? Well, then decay stops. Things last forever. And this is what God did. This is what happens when you trust Christ. God fixes you, and he doesn't put a patch of cookie dough on you. He makes you completely new. And with, new, with salvation, you become a new creation in Christ. You're built for heaven where there is no decay. And once you get there, heaven is perfect, and you are perfect, and you'll never have to worry about potholes. So you have miles and miles and miles of streets that are in God's city that are pure gold and there are no potholes. So the next time that you fall into a pat pothole, you lose the front end of your car in it, you remember Adam did that. Adam's the one who started the pothole department at Caltrans. He's responsible for that. And, and you see, you thought theology was really hard. It's not. It's just simple things like the theology of potholes. The depravity of man is pothole theology. Now, God is a great architect. He built a beautiful city for believers. He makes them perfect to live there. Jesus Christ is the door through which you enter. He's the pearl of great price. And when you put your faith in him, everything changes. All things are made new. Potholes are gone. And then you live in the wealth and the perfection of Christ forever this is a wonderful thing about salvation that it's not just about your escape from hell it's about this wonderful place that you will live with the lord god it's about the enjoyment of heaven and the presence of jesus christ forever and forever heaven is a wonderful place you have to know jesus you have to believe him he's the door through which you enter let's pray father we thank you for your word uh, we just thank you to be able to read about heaven. Each week uh, we say this, what, what a wonderful place that heaven is. And the scriptures just open up before us and lay out all these 
wonderful truths. We see Jesus represented in all the features of that place and how appropriate that it is because it's all about you. It's all about Jesus Christ. And Lord, we're thankful for the knowledge that we receive through your word and in our hearts by faith. We're able to see all of it, to realize it, understand it. Lord, I just pray that you would move the heart of some person today who's never seen Christ on the inside. They've listened to our stories. They've heard us talk about him. They know what the Bible says, but they can't see how beautiful he is until they reach the inside by faith in him. Open up someone's heart to faith today that they may enter the door of Jesus Christ. In his precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.